cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, flogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Have you ever found yourself in a situation that seems absolutely impossible to overcome? Well, that's the situation that the Israelites found themselves in in this story. And the main point of today's story is that God can make a way even when there seems to be no way. So I want to look at three things this morning. Number one, how God leads his people into an impossible situation, verses 1 to 12. Second, how God leads his people through an impossible situation, verses 13 to 29. And third, that God leads his people out of an impossible situation so that they will trust in him completely. So those are the three points I want to look at this morning. First, God leads his people into an impossible situation. That's what we see in verses 1 to 12. Last week we saw how God began to lead his people through the wilderness after they had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, uh, and how he led them not on the most direct route to the promised land, but on a roundabout route uh, by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And at the beginning of this chapter, God tells the Israelites, set up your camp by the sea. So the Israelites didn't end up next to the Red Sea by accident. It wasn't that they had lost their way and they didn't know where they were going. No, God specifically directed them and even led them to camp out there with the express purpose of luring Pharaoh out for one last battle. Uh, now you might notice that three times in this chapter and many times in Exodus, uh, it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We talked about this about uh, several weeks ago, uh, but uh, just as a reminder, uh, it doesn't mean that Pharaoh's heart was once pure and soft and sort of gently inclined toward the Israelites and God poisoned it. That's not at all what it means. 
If you look at the story of Israel in the book of Exodus, the first thing Pharaoh is saying is enslave them, oppress them, and kill them. So Pharaoh's heart is set against the Israelites, and when it says God hardened his heart, it basically means God just strengthened Pharaoh's resolve to do what he already wanted to do. Uh, so God was not the source of Pharaoh's sin and evil, but God simply uh, sort of had him follow through on what he intended to do. Uh, verse 5, we see that Pharaoh uh, took the bait. Right? He sees the Israelites, he thinks they're wandering around in the desert. He thinks, you know what? I think I was wrong. I let them go after that last plague, after the tenth plague. But now Pharaoh does the same thing that he did after the first nine plagues. Right? First nine plagues, Pharaoh, Pharaoh first says, get the plague. You know, I need relief from the plague. Moses, pray to God and ask for God to give me relief and then I'll let you go. And he gets a relief, changes his mind. So here he does the same thing, the tenth time. He sees the Israelites as fled, and he sees that they're not looking back, uh, and he realized that all the construction projects that the Israelites had been working on had come to a screeching halt, and he says, what have we done by letting these people go? Let's go and recapture them. So he pursues them with his army, with his chariots, they were the most technologically advanced military vehicles of their time, and he catches up with them as they're encamped by the sea. Now, if you know military strategy, you go camp in a place where you have no exit. Right? The Israelites found themselves in an impossible situation. The Israelites, the Egyptians had 600 of the best chariots plus plenty of others, along with trade, horsemen, and army officers. The Israelites had no chariots, and no horses, and little or no military training. So if the Israelites stood their ground and fought, they had no chance of victory against a vastly superior military force. And the Israelite caravan wasn't just the soldiers, it also included civilians, children, and cattle. So if they tried to run away from the Egyptians' chariots, they have no hope of running away. So it seems like they have no good options. Swimming across the Red Sea? Well, hardly anybody in the ancient world learned how to swim anyway. It was too far across, even if you did. So verses 10 to 12, the people of Israel rightly recognized that they were in an impossible situation. So they looked and saw and greatly feared the approaching Egyptians. Now they did one thing right in verse 10. Verse 10 says, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the same phrase was used way back in Exodus chapter 2 when it says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came up to God and God heard their groans and God remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the whole story of Exodus, of God's deliverance, began with God's people crying out to him in prayer. In their desperation, they cried out to the Lord. In their distress, they cried out to the Lord, and God heard and mercifully answered them. And so here, the one thing they do right is they cry out to the Lord again. And that's exactly what God wants us to do when we face difficult or seemingly impossible situations, is to cry out to the Lord in prayer. He's heard, and he's answered many times before. But then if you look at verses 11 through 12, 
Their fear and anger and despair got the best of them. Right? At first, when they were leaving Egypt, verse 8 says they were going out defiantly, or that word can also be translated boldly, with confidence. But verse 11 and 12, their confidence, and they're crying out to the Lord, melts away. And they turn on Moses, and they accuse Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt? You've led us here to die in the wilderness. Now, this is a good example of how distress in the present can distort our memory of the past and our vision of the future. Right? No one had forced the Israelites to leave Egypt. Moses hadn't forced them. They had willingly followed him. In fact, they were desperate to get out of there. They were crying out in their slavery and oppression. And they have never said to Moses, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. You won't find that quoted earlier in Exodus, at least. Uh, at, at, after all, Moses wasn't the one who was beating and oppressing them in Egypt. The Egyptians were doing that. So the Israelites were blaming the wrong person for their troubles. And of course, Moses was acting on God's behalf. He hadn't led them out into the wilderness to kill them. He had led them out into the wilderness to rescue them. You see, sometimes, if we encounter unexpected hardships and seemingly impossible situations in the Christian life, our perspective on the past and the future can get distorted. We think that the miserable old days before Christ came into our life, oh, those must have been the good old days. And the people who God has put into our life to help us, like Moses and Aaron in this case, seem like the source of our troubles. No, that's not really the case. Or we can think that God is working against us when the reality is that He, more than anyone else, is for us through Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see is God leads His people into an impossible situation so that they would cry out to Him for help. But the second thing we see in this passage is that God leads His people not just into an impossible situation, but through an impossible situation. And this is the main part of the story. Uh, and I think there's sort of three phases of how God leads his people through this impossible situation. First, in verses 13 through 18, God promises that he would see them through. So if you look at verse 13 and 14, Moses responds to the people. And this is really one of Moses' shining moments as a leader, as a spiritual leader. We've already seen uh, some of the ways Moses fell short as a leader earlier in Exodus, and there will be other times later on. Moses isn't the hero of Exodus, God is. Um, but here, this is one of Moses' shining moments as uh, a spiritual leader. When the people turned on him and blamed him, when their anger and fear and despair got the best of them, Moses stood firm. And he pointed them to the unshakable promises of God. He begins by saying, fear not. Now if you read through the Bible, you type that word into the search box in the Bible Gateway, uh, you will find that that command is repeated over 60 times in the Bible. When God, or one of God's messengers, is speaking to God's people, they say, fear not. Usually they say, fear not because God is with you. Charles Spurgeon, 
uh, a 19th century preacher, uh, said this, The worst evils of life are those which do not exist except in our imagination. If we had no troubles except real troubles, we would not have a tenth part of our present sorrows. We feel a thousand deaths in fearing just one. And that's why God tells people over and over, don't fear. In other words, don't freak out when you're facing hard and seemingly impossible situations because the God you serve is stronger than your greatest enemies. And Moses went on to say, why? They didn't have to fear. He says, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is be still. Be quiet. In other words, Moses wanted the Israelites to know, God doesn't need your help. He just wants your trust. You're not going to win this battle because you're the strongest or the bravest or the most clever or the most technologically advanced, God will fight and win this battle on your behalf. God doesn't want the Israelites to try and impress him. No, God is saying to them, look, and I'm going to impress you. And later on, when God brought Israel into the promised land, this is a lesson that he would have to teach them over and over again. I will fight your battles. You just need to follow my lead. So 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15 through 17, this is hundreds of years later. The people of Israel in the promised land, and King Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, and three countries join forces against him and come to attack the capital city. And Jehoshaphat first prays, and then he speaks to the people, and he echoes Moses' words. He says some of the very same things that Moses said to the people of Israel at the Red Sea. He says this, Don't be afraid, and don't be dismayed at this great army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed. So over and over, God says to his people in the scriptures, Don't fear, Look at me. I'll fight your battles. It's not about you and what you can do. It's about me and what I've promised to do on your behalf. You see, some people think that religion is basically about doing things to try to impress God. Or being good in order to get some props from the man upstairs. That might be true of some religions. But if you're talking about Christianity, nothing could be further from the truth. We can't impress God, no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard the Israelites fought, no matter how fast they tried to run away, they could not escape Pharaoh's approaching army. And the Bible says that we and every other human being, we cannot save ourselves from the power of sin and death and the devil and God's judgment. All those enemies are too strong for us to fight and overcome on our own. Only God can intervene to save us. And the way God has chosen to do that is by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to win the battle on our behalf. To live a perfectly righteous life. And then die as a sacrifice on the cross in our place for our sins so that we might be forgiven. And then to rise again showing that he had won the victory over death. 
The Apostle Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So God is not asking you to clean yourself up or try a little harder or try to put on as good a face as you can. God is calling you to look to Jesus and cast yourself completely on Him. And to see that He died to save you from your sins. And He rose again to win the battle that you could not win. No human being other than Jesus has tried to fight death and has come back and won. Right? Death wins over every one of us in the end. We will all physically die. And the Bible says the reason for that is because ever since the beginning of the human race, we have turned away from God and we have sinned and the way of sin is death. And yet Jesus came to do what we could not do to win that battle over sin and death on our behalf. He is worthy of your complete trust and faith. Verses 15 through 18, we also see God God promising that he'll see them through. God speaks to Moses, and and it's interesting. God says, why are you crying to me? Move forward. Interesting command, right? At first, he just says, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. You're not going to win this battle. You can't fight it on your own. Just trust. And then he says, walk forward. You see, here's the thing. When we trust God to fight our battles, that doesn't mean that we remain completely passive and inactive and never do anything. Right? God wants Moses to act, not only to pray, as he says in verse 15, but he wants Moses to act in a way that only makes sense if God is going to fight the battle for them. Because what does God tell Moses to do? Stretch out your hand over the sea and see it part. Okay, so if I walk down to the the Connecticut River and stretch my hands over the Connecticut River, guess what? It ain't going to part. It ain't going to do a bit of good. And don't try to swim across that river. Because there's been a lot of rain this summer. when God tells Moses, move forward, or when God says to us, take steps to obey God, it doesn't mean that we take matters back into our own hands. No, it means that we move forward in obedience, knowing that God is doing the really important stuff. Just like Moses did here. So, that's the first phase of how God leads them through. First, he promises that he'll see them through, but second, verse 19 to 23, God parted the waters, in the middle of the night. Very interesting. Verse 19 through 23 all happened through the night. Seems like Israel has probably pulled an all-night view. Right? Because I don't think anybody can sleep with all this happening. Verse 19 through 20, the angel of God who had been leading them in the pillar of cloud and fire uh, came between them and the Egyptians all through the night so that the Egyptians couldn't attack them. And then verse 21, the Lord drives the sea back by a strong east wind and makes the sea dry land. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Because if you're familiar with the Bible, it might remind you of a chapter before this one, namely Genesis 1. It tells the story of God creating the world, God forming and filling the world. One of the things God does is separates the land, the dry land, from the waters. So Moses wants us to see that the same God who formed and filled the whole universe 
is the God who has come to save his people here. The God of creation is the God of salvation. Verse 22, while it's still dark and windy, I mean, just imagine that. I visualize a walking through the sea, but it's completely dark, and it's very windy, a strong east wind. Right? So they probably are, you know, going through the Red Sea. It's dry. They can walk through, but gosh, that still sounds like a pretty fearful place to be in. And verse 23 says the Egyptians followed them. So the tension is still pretty high. God protected them all through the night. He promised he'd see them through. He protected them by parting the waters all through the night. But the battle wasn't over till the morning. That's the third sort of phase of how God leads them through. Verse 24 to 29, God decisively triumphed in the morning. Verse 24 begins by saying, in the morning watch. Now the morning watch was the last watch of the night, from about 2 a.m. to sunrise. About, say roughly 6 a.m. Um, and so this is in the last watch of the night, God began to confuse and disrupt the Egyptian forces that were trying to recapture the Israelites. Their chariots got stuck in the mud, the drivers panicked, and even the Egyptians in verse 25 recognized that God was fighting on Israel's behalf. And then verse 26 through 29, we see God's salvation for the Israelites and God's judgment on the Egyptians all happens when morning appeared. Uh, verse 27, the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. You see, God had made a way when there seemed to be no way. Now, what do we learn from how God led his people through this impossible situation? You know, some people read this story and they immediately jump from this story to whatever difficult problem they're facing in their own personal lives. Maybe it's a financial problem, maybe it's an emotional problem, maybe it's a health problem, maybe it's a relational problem. And some people say, just like God led the Israelites through the Red Sea, he's going to make a way for me to get out of whatever this problem is. So let me ask you, is that how we should apply this passage to our own lives today? No. That's not the first and most important implication. There's a grain of truth, and I'll come back to the grain of truth in there, but that's not what we should actually do. Right? Because this story is not primarily about how God leads us through difficult human situations. It's about how God leads them through absolutely impossible situations. You cannot explain how this happened except that it was a miracle. And so you either have to believe that there's God who made the world and sometimes chooses to intervene in the world and do miracles on behalf of his people or you have to say the story doesn't make sense. This is God's miraculous intervention here to rescue them from an impossible situation. So it's not just about the difficult situation that you're in right now. The first and most important thing that this story points us to is how God saved us from a truly impossible situation. Ultimately, through Jesus Christ dying on our behalf and rising from the dead. In fact, notice there are some important parallels with the story of Jesus. So first, the people of Israel saw Pharaoh's army approaching, and God promised that he would see them through as night approached. Now, if you read the story of Jesus, and you get to 
the night before his crucifixion, he's sitting with his disciples, having a meal, and then he speaks to them some words of comfort and assurance and promise. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So Jesus, as night is approaching, says to his disciples, don't be afraid. You can trust me. I'm going to see you through. But then, what happens the next day? The middle of the next day, it goes dark. The sun is dark. The, the, the earth is, is dark when Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross. And just think about it. Just as God made a way for the people of Israel through those waters in the nighttime, when it was all dark, God makes a way for us through Jesus' death on the cross when he stretched out his arms on the cross and died when the world was dark. And when Jesus died, it wasn't a physical ocean or sea that was split in two, but the curtain of the temple was split in two. Right? The Israelites had to get through the Red Sea to get to the promised land where God would dwell with them. And, in order for us to enter into God's presence, the curtain in the temple had to be torn. And finally, when does God seal his victory? In the morning. When morning appeared. And what happens in the story of Jesus when morning appeared on the third day after his crucifixion? People go to the tomb. His body isn't there anymore. And then they see him. And in the morning light, they see that he has won the ultimate victory. You see, it wasn't an accident how God saved the people of Israel through the Red Sea, even in these details. Because it pointed forward to the story of Jesus and how God would save us out of a truly impossible situation, out of sin and death and God's judgment and Satan and all those things that we couldn't conquer, we couldn't get out of our behalf. And, you know, Christians, this isn't just my idea. Christians have recognized this parallel since the early church. So one of the earliest Easter hymns that is sometimes still sung today is from an 8th century poet named John Damascus. And he wrote, The day of resurrection, earth tell it out abroad. The Passover of gladness. The Passover of God. From death to life eternal, from earth unto the sky, our Christ has brought us over with hymns of victory. Christians have seen Jesus has led us through an even greater, greater Red Sea. Now, back to the first question. What about the hard situations that many of us are facing in our lives today that might feel like a Red Sea? Right? The difficult situations, financial problems, emotional problems, relational problems, mental problems, all kinds of human things. Here's the important truth. If you know that Jesus Christ has saved you from your greatest sins, then you can be confident that he will help you and guide you and carry you through whatever hard situations come your way. So that's the truth that we can hold on to. But we don't just jump from the Red Sea to my life today. We see that the Red Sea is a picture of what Jesus did, and on the basis of what Jesus did, we can be confident that God will take care of us and help us one way or another, in whatever situation we're facing today. And Paul uses 
that line of reasoning in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not now give us all things? Right? You have to understand the first about why Jesus came in order to be confident of the second. Uh, you see, here's, here's the thing. Some people say, God is good because he helped me out when I was in a pinch. And I asked him for help, and he came through with what I wanted. And so I know that God is good. Or some people say, God is good because I feel his presence. And I know he's good because I feel his presence. But guess what? Sometimes you will pray, and God won't give you what you ask for. And sometimes you will pray, and you may not feel God's presence at all. You see, you can't build your faith in God only on the foundation of your personal experience because your personal experience alone is a shifting and shaky foundation. And there will be times when you will feel God's presence with a greater certainty than you could ever imagine. There will be times when you have questions for a long time. But here's the solid foundation for believing in God's faith. That God is good because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us when nobody else could. To save us from sin and death. And he's already provided for our greatest spiritual needs. Therefore, we can know that even if it's not in the way we hope or expect, that he will truly bring us through whatever difficult situations arise along the way. So God leads his people into an impossible situation. God leads his people through an impossible situation. And finally... Briefly, God leads his people out of the impossible situation so that they will trust him completely. Look at verse 30 and 31. Uh, these verses focus on people's response. In verse 10, they had seen the Egyptians approaching and they greatly feared the Egyptian army. In verse 30, it says, they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore and they, uh, verse 31 says, the people, so the people feared the Lord. So they went from a wrong and excessive fear of their enemies to a right and proper fear of God himself. You see, when it says they fear the Lord, it doesn't mean that they were cringing in terror and worrying that God was going to turn on them like he turned on the Egyptians. No, that's not what it means to fear the Lord. It doesn't mean to fear that God will reject us or turn on us. It means to stand in awe of him. In some ways... Just as if you were a child wandering out into the street and somebody yanked you back and then the bus went right by, you might stand and you might have a healthy fear and respect and trust and gratitude for the one who pulled you back. Right? You take that seriously. You're not just going to wander willy-nilly into the road anymore. Right? That's sort of what it means to fear God in a good way. Not to fear that he'll turn against us, but to know that he's for us and to stand in awe of his saving work on our behalf. Verse 30 said, The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And verse 31 says, Israel saw the great power. That's actually the same word that's translated hand in verse 30. So it says, God saved them from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the great hand of the Lord. You see, the story of Exodus is they went from fearing that the Egyptians would capture them and keep them in their hands, in their grip, 
but knowing that God had saved them and they were in his good faithful hands. You see, all the hard situations God brings us through and the truly impossible situations that Jesus has saved us from, God is inviting us to simply depend on him and trust him. Like the Israelites do at the end of the story here. That's how God invites us to respond to him in light of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your saving work on behalf of the Israelites. We thank you for how the story shows us your miraculous power and your steadfast love. And Lord, we pray that we would trust in you, that we would trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, and what he said for us. Lord, help us to be people who do not need to fear other things in this world uh, because we trust and stand on the greatest thing that you